doing very, very well. How are you? Doing great, doing great. It's great to have you. Thank we you. We have been chatting from time to time and I met you at our Basel, actually, but we never had the chance to go into details about your background and what you are doing in more detail. So I'm very happy to have this opportunity. The pleasure is all mine. I've been really looking forward to it for some weeks now. Thank you. All right, Valerie. So you are the head of art at Freely Tech, which their aim is to push and work with different initiatives in the arts and culture for the Tesos ecosystem. And I think that that will be a good place to start before we jump into your background before Freely Tech. So can you tell us a bit about your role? What, what are you doing right now and what is the main objective of Trilly Tech? Of course. The Trilly Tech office is a London hub of the Tezos ecosystem. It is, as you know, Tezos is a very decentralized ecosystem. So many of the different offices have different prerogatives and different mandates. Um, generally, the heads of the different verticals live at Trilitech in London. Their teams might be more international, but I had the art vertical here in London with two of my team members, Vincian Jones, the project manager, and Lars Ducrau, who many of you might know as Pronoia, who's based out of Utrecht, but who joins us at various events and, of course, for the mandatory initiatives. And also, of course, my colleagues in India, Varundo in India is also of great support to the team. So I am based in the London office and Trilitech is very much an adoption hub, uh, a business development hub, uh, a hub of strategy and leadership. But of course, we consider all of these mandates for adoption to be global and decentralized. So whilst it's as simple as it is confusing is often how I describe it. And the head of gaming is based there. The head of DeFi is based there. The head of sports and partnerships as well. We have a new CMO joining us very soon. And yeah, we have daily conversations and we're all trying to leverage one another's expertise as well. So it's not a purely art silo, I would argue. I very much am in touch with the sports partners and the gaming partners to see how we can activate and really leverage our various networks as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, that sounds exciting. A lot of diversity. I know Pronoia. We chat from time to time and he knows a lot. He's the perfect collector. He knows the ecosystem really well and collects from, I think, several years on Tesos, but also on other blockchains. So he brings a lot of interesting you know, perspective. I would like to have him in the podcast at some point. I'm sure he'd be delighted. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, working with him. I mean, it's only been a few weeks and already he's provided invaluable insight uh, that there were others in the ecosystem that provided that insight when I first joined, most notably Diane Drubet, who remains a valuable member of the Tezos art ecosystem at large. But now that she's focusing on the WAC Labs and WAC Fellowship and Factory Initiatives, I don't get as much access to her expertise as I would like. And so Lars, as you know him, Pranoya, um, joining has been really, really invaluable. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a great, like a direct touch, uh, communication channel with the community because he understands, because he was on the other side for a while and he has many friends, many connections from the community and can distribute that information directly to the initiatives that starts and maybe even generate new initiatives based on that feedback. So I think that's a great way to, to grow the community and, and listen to the community. And Valerie, we'll get back to 
what you are doing right now. But can you tell us a bit about your past? Because you have a long history. You've been in the art world for a while. You work in a, in a gallery for a while. That's, I think, what you mentioned once. So can you tell us a bit, how did you get started in the art world? What were your previous roles before embarking in this Web3 slash blockchain art world? What were you doing previously? I had a 15-year career as a photography gallerist primarily, but also advisor. But I liked how you phrased, how did I get into the art world? And I mm -hmm. want to address that really, really quickly, because I think it's imperative uh, to answer, is I got really lucky. Mm. I worked hard, but I also got really lucky. And what I see within Web3 and decentralized art ecosystems and communities is that, of course, a little bit of luck always goes a long way, but the hard work goes the longer way, mm. um, at least in my experience. And maybe that will change. And maybe that is changing in a market such as the one that we're in now. But effectively, how I got into the art world was being very lucky and leveraging who I knew, leveraging my community and my mm. contacts, asking for favors that were graciously given to me. Off the back of that, then there was, of course, a lot of hard work. And so for the past, prior to joining Trilitech and the Tezos ecosystem, I was a photography expert, a photography advisor, gallerist, seller. I was on the sales side. And the mm. artist, to be very frank, was fairly low on my priority list. Okay. If the artist was not living and was not a friend of mine or was not a direct collaborator within the gallery context, which... By the end of my career, very often that was the case, and there were real strong friendships and strong collaborative collaborative efforts that were made. At least at the very beginning, it was sell, 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 object, mm -hmm. object, object. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said around the way that Web3 has re-enabled artists to be the primary center of attention. So Yeah, across my experience really with photography, I think that is really what led me into this space was understanding one of those real historical initial discussions that's very much kind of been a copy and paste of what we're seeing here in the crypto art space is infinitely reproducible media that have value because of market structures that create scarcity. Okay. That is a bit of, I would say, a reproduction in history. And it's one that fascinated me when I discovered the Tezos ecosystem. I was just like, wow, this is the same thing being done over again, perhaps perfected a bit more, especially because you obviously you have more provenance tracking and the authenticity is based mm -hmm. on the blockchain is much more verifiable than what you can do in um, the traditional gallery world without a specialist. But yeah, that's the, the long and short of it was I got lucky. I worked really hard. I specialized in photography and photography brought me to the blockchain. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things that are quite interesting. First, the fact that you work with the work of artists that weren't alive at the time. That's something that in the traditional art world probably is a very common concept. And when you look at digital art, that's not really common. It's because it's so new. Basically, all the artists are... 99% are alive today. And I think as time passes, that will change a bit the dynamics. But coming back to your background, Nicole from Vertical was here in the podcast on the last episode. And coming back to traditional galleries, um, she mentioned that many of those will actually like to join the digital art space. 
but it's they don't know how it's complex uh, they don't know the concepts in your role right now with your experience working 15 years in the traditional photography art world do you see that as well do you think that there is a, an entry barrier for galleries physical galleries that maybe are interested but they don't know where to start is that something you have seen i would say that i've seen that at large within the sort of post 1950s gallery space so we'll call it like postmodern to contemporary gallery space at large though what's interesting about the photography community is that they're a bit more resentful and hmm. um, maybe it's not every photography gallery but we're about to see the first ever digital sector at Paris Photo, curated by Nina Roars. And I know there was a lot of resistance to that. And part mm. of that is really something really mundane, which is it goes back to what I said about photography being the original reproduce, infinitely reproducible medium that created market structures. Mm. But the world record for a photograph doesn't even come close to the Beeple's sale. Mm. Yeah. And so overnight, crypto art, took on all of that historical learning, something that's over a hundred years old, and suddenly made it made sense to young collectors with way more money than traditional photography collectors, with a few exceptions, and kind of blew it out of the water. Mm. So there was an extra dynamic of frustration and I think resentment, I think resentment's the right word. Maybe a little bit of a hint of jealousy there too. So with photography galleries, I see, and photography estates as well, mm -hmm. I see a curiosity, but I also see a deep-seated, we've been doing this for a long time. And that feeling of how on earth did this happen and we hadn't figured it out or where did this come from and why did they have the secret sauce? Mm -hmm. But I do agree with Nicole that in general, contemporary galleries are seeking a way of answering their audience's questions because a gallery isn't going to do anything that doesn't get them money via their audience's curiosity. That's their business model. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also seeking ways of incorporating this for alternative revenue streams, which is super valid. And then I think there's that third element of how does this push my gallery ahead of my competitors? Mm. And you're right. They don't know where to start. There's very few resources for that. Um, Mikkel's residency would be one avenue. Uh, Deandre Bay's WAC Labs would be another. Even though it's catered towards institutions, the WAC Weekly is an essential part of that learning experience. I know you're working on a project that's very much going to help bring <laughs> this to light for, for galleries as well. So that educational piece, I think, is, is paramount to enabling galleries, whether they're curious right now or not, to address their audiences in a new way, address their artists in a new way, and simply to really amplify what they're hmm. meant to do. Yes. I agree with that. But photography is a different beast at the moment. Yeah. We'll see what it, happens in Paris Photo. <laughs> yeah, it's a very specific field. And Probably what you said about artists, galleries, in this case, photographers being resentful, that can translate probably to other uh, art disciplines. When we think about artists that, as you said, have been working in their craft for many years or galleries, and then they see the people say, sale, like 70 million, and they start to see this take off. Yeah, I can see how they could be resentful. and. 
Valerie, when you think about Trilly Tech in the art vertical, what are some of the initiatives or what are some of the ways? First, is it your intention or Trilly Tech's intention to go get the traditional market to join this ecosystem? Or is it more like, okay, let's build something for new people? Doesn't necessarily need to be the traditional art world. What is your thoughts there? What is uh, tension from the initiative you are working on? I should mention that, of course, the market has changed quite a bit since I started in May mm -hmm. 2022. And at the time, the Tesla Foundation still had a partnership with our Basel, mm -hmm. uh, which, which excited me immensely. I thought that partnership had the potential to do great, great things. And it wasn't the fault of any of the teams that it couldn't. But we read the room, we did a litmus test of what the Art Basel teams could deliver, how they could translate the value of what the Tesla's ecosystem had to offer, and then what we were presenting. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it didn't make concrete sense in terms of moving the needle, either for the Tezos artists, collectors, or for the Basel community. Mm -hmm. and, and that brings me down to a very, I think, concrete metric, which is who's ready, who is mm -hmm. the audience, And how can that audience amplify their community as well as ours? And those are sort of the three things that I think about when I look at either partnerships or sponsorships or events or, mm -hmm. or simply just support and sort of platforms. Currently, in a bear market where liquidity is lacking, where pricing across all the ecosystems has waned, In fact, I did a bit of research recently and the, the secondary market prices on Tezos are holding up just a bit better than everyone else, which is lovely. Yeah. And that indicates that loyalty. But in that particular moment in time, where can we really change hearts and minds? And I guess a lot of our conversations leading up to what's happened recently with the Musée d'Orsay halfway through a partnership with the Serpentine Gallery, where we've had immense press and immense attention around the Gabrielle Messon exhibition. Mm -hmm. um, side note, Madonna included the visuals in her recent concert at the oh. O2 because she loved the exhibition so much. I'm not okay. sure she mentioned the NFT on Tezos, but these types of really overwhelmingly different activations mm -hmm. that seduce people to want to learn more. Everyone had their moment where they learned about blockchain, whether it was some random tweet or a friend or someone in crypto, which led us down a rabbit hole. And I think mm -hmm. we have an opportunity with these big name institutions to get more of those people and to yeah. really get people that have an immense curiosity with creativity at large. So at the moment, my attention is going to institutions that are interested, who believe they can galvanize audiences, who I think can also benefit the Tezos ecosystem in one way or another, whether it's Gabriel Massan as an OG creator, or in the case of the Musée d'Orsay, commissioning artworks yeah. in the future. So 2024, look out, there's other projects that are going to involve the ecosystem at large and various different platforms at that. In the future, when things are more thriving, it, it might mean that we're really putting a lot more effort into supporting individual marketplaces, platforms, apps, wallets. And at that point, I think that will make much more sense. But we need to have the conversation across the board because otherwise we're not prepared for every single up and down. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's a complex challenge because when you think about Tesos, of course, you're focused on the art side, the culture and art side, but there are many verticals as well. So you have the protocol itself, the technology behind it, which is very, very advanced and complicated at the same time. And to explain how it works is a challenge for non-technical people. But at the same time, that's one of the advantages or the main propositions of Tesos, that it's technology. And then you have, of course, all the applications, the customer-facing applications in the ecosystem. Then you have all the artists that use them, and then you have the collectors. But at the same time, you have other initiatives, gaming, and how to actually attract founders to build and create things on the protocol and in this blockchain. So it's a very complex challenge. And I think you mentioned something that it's true in many, not only where we are right now in terms of the technology, but in across history. Sometimes people aren't ready and it makes sense to go get art lovers, but maybe they aren't ready or the technology, the applications, the use cases aren't ready for them to understand. And it's very complicated and it's a common challenge, I think, across history when we think about technology. But that's exciting. You said there are a couple of initiatives, Valerie, for 2024. Also, I think there is an interesting partnership with MoMA, right, at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about those? What can you tell us about these institutions you are working with? What can you share already? I should clarify that our relationship with MoMA isn't actually a partnership. The Autonomy's team, Mm -hmm. Bitmark team, and Madeline at MoMA have conceived of, and I don't often use this word, but mind-blowing projects, absolutely mind-blowing initiatives. We at the Tezos Art Vertical, myself, Vincienne, Lars, various people at the foundation, the marketing teams, we're all here to support. We're all here to make sure that if we can be there, great. We want to shout loud and proud about it because it's such an amazing project. And I think there's going to be more there. Hmm. I'm going to let them reveal what they will. But already the postcard project has galvanized immense interest. The artists that they've gotten on board have, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better There was no partnership we could have had where that would have ended up better. And it's part of my respect for MoMA and the autonomy team that just makes me so immensely proud to it all be allowed to even claim to be involved. They're amazing collaborators. We're in touch daily to, yeah, address any concerns and make sure that everyone's happy. On the side of the Serpentine, which has already been a year in, the Gabriel Masson exhibition has had record numbers. It's extended towards November 26th. For anyone who's coming through London, please play the game. Please mint your memory. The idea of that minted memory, by the way, it's kind of hard to translate on a website, but we really want everyone who's minted a memory to really be a part of a tapestry of that exhibition because that exhibition is likely going to tour. Mm-hmm. and. That will then further expand the contributors to the game, especially because the game adapts to the gameplay of the people that are contributing. So there's another month for anyone who's around, you should totally do it. And further to that, there's going to be more online and in real life educational initiatives. We obviously have our Basel Miami coming up and we hope to do a little bit more of a profile of that relationship there. 
uh, Serpentine Galleries, as you know, has the art and their art technologies team with whom we work very closely, has a very keen um, interest as a mandate, but also an ear to developments. And they sometimes know before I do what's happening. And we very closely collaborate on making sure we adapt to those things. Um, in terms of the Musée d'Orsay, the partnership that's just been announced, we opened with the Van Gogh Digital Souvenir, uh, which mm -hmm. is available through February. You go through the exhibition, don't forget to go to the boutique. That is where the digital souvenir is. You can also buy it online ahead of your visit. You can get discounts on the tickets. All of these are very practical utility, very simple ways of, again, bringing in different audiences with different understandings, with different readiness for this mm -hmm. technology. But in 2024, we have a few other activations planned with Tezos creators, including potentially an exhibition. I'm not going to give too much away because we want to make sure to put that kind of tease everyone beforehand. Their teams there, I can't even tell you, are so incredibly literate. And that's, again, thanks to the WAC Labs program and DN's team and the We Are Museums team in general. For those of you who don't know the history, by the way, I should mention this. The Musée d'Orsay is a collection that's based on refused artwork. Okay. I'm going to mess up my years at this hour, but in the early 19th century, the Beaux-Arts in Paris dictated what was good art. <laughs> and at some point, Napoleon III, and I think it might have been one of his mistresses or his court, were like, well, there's other good art out there too. And they basically created the Salon des Refusés. Now that's, it, which translates as the Salon of Refused Artists. Now that's not the mm. entire collection, but there is a direct narrative between that collection and the collection of what the Musée d'Orsay has. It's very direct in terms of their understanding of how blockchain is integrated into their programming, that this is somehow the history of what crypto art is going through. Right? Okay. okay. Without over-egging the narrative and without pretending, because art historians love to pretend there's a direct lineage between one thing and another thing, hmm. without pretending there's a direct link, there is certainly an echo. And, and they're not unaware of that. And I think it's important for the crypto art community to understand that this is not just the Musée d'Orsay choosing new technologies. There is actually a ghost there of a similar experience within the art world that's yeah. happening right at this moment. Yeah, that's quite interesting. How did that happen in that particular case? Well, first, regarding autonomy, you mentioned autonomy. I think they are doing a great job. Also, I have collaborated in the past with the team, with Sean, Michael, for Blind Gallery initiatives in different ways, and they're doing an amazing job. I was at MoMA for Rafik Sanadol, the showcase, and I was very impressed by how simple it was to mint through autonomy uh, that piece in particular. It was a very smooth approach. And I was wondering, how did this collaboration with the museum happen? But also, what do you think about this minting, the live minting experiences so far? What have you seen from people, their reactions? What could be better in the future? What do you think will get better as time passes with the technology? In general, what are your thoughts on this? So in terms of the autonomy and Bitmark collaboration with MoMA, I was aware of it. I can't honestly tell that story for Sean, mm -hmm. but you might even know more about it than, than I do. But it was brought to us in terms of we wanted to support the autonomy wallet. We wanted to make sure that 
we had a technology like theirs that was really thinking about how art is consumed by traditional collectors, which is through a wallet, not necessarily through a wallet marketplace, mm-hmm. or rather, which in Web3 might be better communicated through a wallet like autonomy. Mm-hmm. I thought the live minting was seamless. Mm-hmm. But, but then again, I realize every time I do one of these things that I'm missing out on a friction point. So mm-hmm. I always rely on people that haven't done it yet to mm-hmm. tell me how confusing or not confusing or what's missing. Um, I love when my parents actually come to these things because they'll just break it down. They'll be like, this was confusing. This was not cool. Oh. I didn't get an email. They really bring that to the fore. And there is a sense of, I think, really great platforms now having to satisfy a web 2.5. We need to communicate with people in the way that they are used to being communicated with. If you buy something, yeah. you normally get an email receipt and yeah. it freaks some people out when you don't. Yeah. I think the autonomy minting experience was incredibly quick, especially because I had a foreign phone number and I wasn't on Wi-Fi. I was expecting mm. it to be a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, within the Serpentine, because there's a custom API that's directly linked to video gameplay, it does take longer. And mm. we try to explain that to people, but Anything over a three-minute wait gets people a little bit frustrated. So there's that. Within the Musée d'Orsay, the digital souvenir, that's also incredibly quick. It is a purchased NFT rather than a live mint. Mm-hmm. But that does bring me sort of the next stage of where I think we're at. I think it was a New Yorker study published. My Lord, it must have been like 2010 or 11. And it was something around the lines of the best way to get someone to read a book cover to cover. And the study went from leave it on a bench give it to a friend, donate it to charity, or sneak it back into the bookshop and make someone pay full price. Mm-hmm. And the answer the, at the end, I don't really know how they studied this, but I remember being fascinated by the study. It was, if you make someone pay full price for the book, they'll read it cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And I'm that way. Like, if you give me a book as a friend, unless you give me a deadline, like, I'm not going to finish reading it. It will just accidentally stay with me. Mm-hmm. And I love reading. But with digital souvenir or mints or mementos, whatever it is you want to call them, even if there's fewer of them, I feel like you're going to have more loyal customers if you make them pay a minimum amount. Mm-hmm. And it means that they're going to explore other things. So if you say, here, have this five Tez NFT, but explore or here, have this 10 Tez NFT and you might get a reward. They're mm-hmm. going to engage with things differently. And that's that without wanting to disrespect the phenomenon of what's happened on Tezos, what's happened across Web3 in general with the creator and collector economy. To get traditionalists on board, to get people who weren't part of that movement on board, it is going to take a little bit of a traditional approach, I think. And wallets like Autonomy, platforms like Autonomy, are enabling that. Initiatives like Kehu at the Musée d'Orsay are enabling that. Nice. Nothing's going to be perfect until we figure out the kinks, but um, yeah. I think those are, those are really important steps forward to make sure that this isn't a localized, siloed phenomenon or movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sometimes my worry. If that's the case, who knows, but if things don't get easier for the normal user, it can happen with like a silo community in general, that just people that are curious enough to actually try and read and test it and, and those like the early adopters. 
But at the same time, when you think about the the logic and the philosophy of the decentralization, people actually owning whatever it is, could be an article, could be an artwork, could be your handle, and you actually own it. And when we see that everything is going digital more and more and more, um, there is no reason why it shouldn't be supported by this technology. That doesn't mean it shouldn't get easier and the barrier should be demolished. But yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I feel like I had a great experience, but of course I had used autonomy in the past. I had my wallet set up. I would like to know what's the seeing somebody doing it from scratch. I was there with a newbie and it was fine. Okay, nice. I think that that person was, didn't necessarily know where to go from there. Mm -hmm. But once that takes further education, and that's what I think, if I can do anything with the autonomy and the the MoMA teams, that's what we're, we're really hoping to further discuss is how do we make sure that anyone who takes part in these things knows where to go from there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, my worry is that, let's say you did that at MoMA. And then two, three years later, you go to a concert and a big band has a similar thing that you can scan and get their digital object. My worry is that they do it all from scratch and they don't connect their old wallet to this new wallet because that would be much easier if they, oh, look, here is this old object I had from MoMA 2017 or whichever year. The problem is how strict the crypto wallets are from nature that if you lose it, you lose it forever. It's not like you can recover it through an email or whatever, but that's the way it is. Maybe there could be something done in a decentralized way, but it's not that easy. But there there are comparables in the contemporary wallet world. Like I don't have Venmo because I don't live in the States anymore. But if Mm -hmm. a friend says, oh my God, I only have Venmo, there's a way... Mm -hmm. There are synchronizations between things like Venmo and PayPal. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of my parents, like I might use Wise to transfer yeah. across currencies. And that's very traditional. But it, I, I feel at some point it should be the same. I go to a concert. I do a live mint. It's in a wallet that I'm not going to use. It might be new. It might be just one that I don't really like the interface of. And mm-hmm. so I transfer it to my whatever yeah. wallet. And that, that I don't think is, is beyond the realm of possibility, but I do agree with you that there's other constraints of understanding how to keep access to those wallets and one's yeah. assets that we don't overly communicate because they can be very scary. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the minute you log out of whatever it is account and you have to find your seed phrase or you forget your password, it becomes extremely scary. That's way scarier yeah. than knowing how scary yeah. right that's a yeah that's the main issue that there is no point of contact to recover your things and that's my main concern and uh but yeah it's about getting educated and as you said if you buy the book if you invest on it then most probably you will read about it and how to don't lose it right and keep reading that. it yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think most of these things are mind tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like one of the things that made the crypto art community so vibrant, it was 
coming out or adjust at the sort of promise of the end of COVID after so mm -hmm. much time alone, after so much time being isolated. Yeah. And there's a whole sector of the population, 99% of the population probably, that didn't get that particular experience and yeah. had a completely different experience and just needs different avenues of access, different rabbit holes yeah. of understanding. And not having worked in tech before, when I came to tech, I began to work with a lot of different neurodivergent individuals, people who are absolutely excellent, but with whom I had to learn how to communicate. Hmm. And yeah. that was a beautiful challenge for me. Hmm. And I think that's maybe the challenge that cryptocurrency, crypto art, Web3 creator economies have to go through hmm. of almost reverse learning what the traditional economy wants of yeah. their transaction experience. Mm -hmm. And that's that there's nothing wrong with it. It's I think it's just takes it's gonna take time and adaptation and reaching new nodes of, of understanding. Yeah, totally. And I think in, in blockchain in general, we see a lot of language that comes from investors and from developers. So the language in general it's usually like that because those were the ones that made the space thrive early on and when we use things like a bull market a bear market and a lot of technical terms from developers that's something that makes it all very complicated for collectors or artists or somebody that just wants to play a game on the blockchain and i think over time those things get better because then we get new creators, new founders that adapt the language and people that come from the art world. And then you learn their language, but also they don't learn your language. They learn the terms that are used in the art world, or they understand which terms are very confusing for, for people, the technical terms. So I think it's that there is no way around it. It's just a process that takes time. And Valerie, we have talked about some challenges to bring people to the ecosystem. We mentioned traditional galleries, maybe not knowing how to get into the space, where to start. We mentioned the minting process, having a crypto wallet. We mentioned the terms. What else have you seen? Is there anything else that comes to mind, like from people you have talked to, maybe your friends, when you explain what you're doing these days, your family? What are other barriers for people that kind of stopping them from trying or getting used to the whole blockchain, Tesos art, digital art ecosystem? I'll start with one big one, and I won't go down that rabbit hole because that's something that a lot of different people with way more influence than I have need to figure out. But regulation is a big one. Hmm. Um, most European fine art collections don't own the collection. So how can they possibly have a wallet? Uh -huh. There's issues of custody and there are solutions to this. There are plenty of solutions, but that becomes a barrier right off the bat. Like I can't have a wallet because I don't own anything. Only the boutique shop owns things and we're only allowed to make revenue because of this other company that owns the shop, mm -hmm. whatever that might be. There's issues around KYC. There's issues also around the fact, especially with recent news about the British Museum, does the British Museum really want to archive its collection on the blockchain to enable loans to other people? My guess is not right now. 
um, and potentially not in the future. What's so what's that news? I think I, I missed that. What's the so, that story um, about? Yeah, I don't want to distract too much, but um, <laughs> there's been quite a bit that um, has been discovered stolen from the British Museum archives. But most people don't know that 90% of what's in a museum is in boxes in an archive, mm. whether it's in the museum or offsite. And I mean cardboard boxes with lists that <laughs> don't get checked. Yeah. And that's not alarming. That's just a fact. I've worked for a number of different museums and I've gone into the vault and I've been like, oh, interesting. And I lift the hood and I'm like, oh, cool. That's great. And you just push mm. that box right where it was. And there, there's not enough people in the world to do this. Mm -hmm. um, there's more art than one could possibly mint on the blockchain underneath museum vaults at the moment, honestly. Wow. Uh, though I don't challenge anyone to make that calculation. Please don't do that. <laughs> but I think separate to that particular issue, because that's a really big issue. That's a huge adoption issue that we all need to tackle, whether it's, you know, you talking to your local administrators or, or museums or local collections to try to figure out how they're going to figure this out. Um, I think the biggest one is there's still a sense of firm boundary mm -hmm. that even I feel within the Web3 ecosystem. Now, I've since been welcomed by everyone I know at Tezos. I, I've since been welcomed by many other blockchain artists, collectors who are really interested in my background. You and I got on like a house on fire when we met and then again in New York. Mm. But there's this strange sense of independence that I feel the Web3 community in, whether it's language or whether it's platform or whether it's degen speak or whether it's platform or social media platform, I should say, because Twitter is a very specific space to communicate that reinforces the lack mm. of acceptance. And Lord knows when I first started, I felt very alone. I, I didn't know. Maybe I wasn't the right hire at that right moment. Maybe I wasn't the right person for Trilitech or for the Tezos Degen space, I'm not really sure, but I get the sense every time that I introduce someone to the space that they feel really alienated because they can't get into it. It takes a certain level of courage. Now, I'm not saying at all that the Tezos community isn't probably the most open of all of those communities. Yeah. I, ima I imagine and, and have seen from experience that it is. But what I would suggest is that to welcome more people in all Web3 communities have to say, this is not necessarily a political movement. It's an art movement. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's different across different verticals and it can have its politics. I empathize with that and I have that completely top of mind in many of my discussions. But to grow, one has to also potentially recruit. And you're not going to recruit if you're not going to go into the front lines with people who think differently and who mm -hmm. have a different experience that might threaten how everyone in the Web3 space is currently thinking. Yeah. Um, and hopefully it can bring a little bit of insight and just new ideas. That's why you go into new spaces. You go into new spaces for new ideas. And yeah. I think it has vastly improved since I started in May. I remember having a conversation with someone when I was at Art Basel who was more than offended that I brought the VIP crowd of Art Basel to the Tezel stand with a glass of champagne. Mm. 
And I, I was like, listen, like you, ha- these people are curious. You got to bring them in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that translates to. And, and so far as a wider action, I don't know how that manifests itself. And that person, by the way, really loved the results. So we're all, we're all good on that. <laughs> okay. point. But I, I'm, I'm not articulating this very well, but I would suggest that there are moments that can make people afraid to be vulnerable in this space. Mm-hmm. And that continues to be the case. Uh, and as welcoming and friendly and encouraging as this space can be, it can always it can also be really tough. And I think Twitter is actually part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to find better, more diverse spaces. You and I were talking about it before. Like, how do we communicate better on YouTube? Mm-hmm. How do we make this more of a everyone is welcome? We're not challenging yeah. anyone anything kind of experience. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand what you mean because I look back to when I started and to be honest, I spent a lot of time. I went into the different discords. I went and chat with many people on Twitter and I read a lot and I was writing about it. So that kind of made me bring it down to a simpler uh, language. So I had to ex- kind of explain it to people. Not everybody has that amount of time. And if you aren't welcoming in different ways, or if you aren't thinking about that, there are many people that have different ways of understanding things. So it's very hard for people to feel uh, welcome. And I think it comes back to different things. It's about what I've found is since everything is digital and it's like a very diverse, we get people from all around the world with different backgrounds, in different stages of their life. And maybe it's hard to all of us come to an agreement. It's not like we are all starting this movement from London or from US or from a country. It's all around the world at the same time, different ages, different genders, different objectives. So it all, boom, kind of gets into one place and it, it's very hard for it to fit perfectly. I'd never mm. thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. I kind of often make this comparison, but it's like Paris in the 1920s, but that was like 40 people and mm. they were all living in Paris, eating the same yeah. place, all roughly the same age, all trading money amongst each other. That's a lot easier to manage and to, mm. you're absolutely right. I think that might be the major, the major challenge and, it, but it's, one that can be regionally perhaps addressed as well. Yes, you mentioned it in Paris, that example is the same with Silicon Valley. And they were all, they had kind of the same background, the same interests. They were geeks in, in San Francisco and maybe in other cities, but they all talk the same language. Yeah. If you do it regionally, I think that works. But when they get out of the region, then we have the same problem. And then... I think it's about time, to be honest. When we think about the internet, maybe that was similar, but at the same time, only a few people when the internet started had access to it. That made it, again, it was kind of similar people that were going into websites early on and having trying email, but now everybody has access and that's when things kind of could become complicated. I understand what you mean. Also. There are people that have different interests. Um, some are here for the art. Some and many are here to make money. Uh, some are here to develop products and develop applications. 
some are for the culture, for events, so many, many uh, different interests. And it's hard to put it all together. But yeah, it's a good point you brought. I think we talked about many challenges. That's uh, really interesting. Now let's talk about exciting stuff. What are you excited about? We know it's a tough market in general. I think all around the world. It's not only for uh, blockchain and crypto. We have many very bad events happening worldwide and inflation rates. Unemployment, it's higher now. AI is coming to the scene. Many jobs, many layoffs in general. What are you excited about these days in terms of Tesos, in terms of the events you're working on, the collaborations? What are things that you look forward to during these times? I pause not because there aren't many, but because <laughs> there are too many. Okay. <laughs> Listen, it is, as you said, it is a very difficult market. And there's a lot of people coming to the Tesla's foundation and to the art vertical for support. And even that is much more difficult to give, at least in the way that it was before. Mm -hmm. What's exciting to me is that two years ago, grants were going to, or and investments were going to put fire into platforms that are now actually operating and driving revenue and have their own business models mm -hmm. and are working directly with these museums, right? Mm -hmm. Or working directly with artists, with great artists estates. I'm also very encouraged by what I see in terms of the curatorial excellence. There's, without being exclusive, there are people within this space now, and I, I, I say this across wider Web3 web art, but including Tezos, and, and Tezos plays a vital part in that, that have an eye and mm. have an eye that excites me so much. Like there, in my final interview at Trilitech, one of the people in the room asked me if there was such thing as an eye without a hesitation, without a blink said, absolutely there is, but you'll not know it until you know someone who has one. Mm. And the people that I see in this space, curating shows, advancing artist initiatives. You know, you look at the Lumen Prize and you look at that shortlist and you think, my Lord, that wasn't just the artists. And mm -hmm. equally, it took the artists and it took all of their blood, sweat and tears in this space to make the type of artwork that's going to absolutely change the way that we see the world. Mm -hmm. Not all of that is going to help people who are currently wanting jobs, currently wanting more revenue, none of that is going to change that part of the conversation. I'm afraid nothing I could say is going to change that. But what's going to change the future when we really look to the other side of this, right. the world will have been changed. People's eyes will have been opened. People's opinions will have been moved one way or another. Yeah. Even the haters, if they hate more, it means <laughs> it's even better. Yeah. Right? yeah. And there was a moment last October, it was actually last Paris Plus, which would have been this week, Next week, last year, one of the artistic director affairs I'm for Art Basel, he was the first Art Basel leadership team member to be on a panel. It was on a panel I moderated and I asked what they were looking forward to in the next year. And he said, it's not going to be in the next year. But everyone at Art Basel is looking to this space to be the mm. next upside down bicycle wheel on a stool. Mm. Or your final turn sideways. And I firmly believe that the more that I see coming out of the space, the more that I see coming out of the Tezos community, the more that I see out of the curators mm -hmm. putting short lists of Tezos art and other Web3 art together, there is nothing 
yeah. nothing that stands in our way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the greatest gift that all of the effort of all those platforms, of all the grantees, of all the things that the Tezos Foundation or any other foundation is invested in, of people like you, of all of the leaders in this space who are promoting the conversation, all of that hard work has gone behind those creative energies to make that possible. Mm. And that's not something that you can create out of just a checkbook. That's yeah, really no. That's a great way to put it. I'm always impressed by curators because they are driven by passion because there are curators, professional curators that have a formal job at a museum or in a gallery, but I've seen so many in this space that they do it because they love doing that. It's more of a passion, something they have to do, and they put together these amazing exhibition shows, spend a lot of time. And you're right that we see that a lot on Tesos. It's something that it's probably more common than in other places. And that's a good way to put it. And that will kind of stand the test of time. That's something I think that presents. Really yeah. I really think it will. I've done a lot of, with an art history background in post war contemporary art, having worked, I don't know of anything really that's been more impactful that hasn't been directly orchestrated by market makers. Hmm. Someday you and I will sit down over a coffee and I'll give you a whole bunch of gossip about how the contemporary art market just was essentially people moving needles around and puppeteering. Mm. But this is one of those things that has honestly changed the way that I think the entire art world could possibly art operate in the future. And I really mean that. Right. Yeah, that's exciting. We'll catch up over coffee in a few years and... <laughs> Also, we'll see how everything moves forward. I'm actually excited. I think it's a rough time in general, in every industry, in many countries, the economy is not the best of the best. But we see that things are happening every day. And see, when I sit down to write a newsletter, I always have a lot of things, a lot of artists creating stuff, a lot of exhibitions, a lot of museums in the game now. Um, so yeah, I, I probably... What has changed is just the volume, if you think about it, and the amount of options. But the quality is still there, in a way. It's still there. Um, it's more there. Yeah. It's even more there with mm -hmm. the volume. They've both yes. amplified, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, Valerie, this was very exciting. We have been talking for an hour. I have a final question, which I ask all the guests, and it's not... Some love to answer it, some are more hesitant, but what are three artists that inspire you, Valerie? Could be ideally blockchain artists, could be, it's open, it's an open question. Okay. Could be from somewhere else, traditional artists as well. I'll make it a diverse one if I can. Mm. Um, so as far as blockchain artists, Ayak Shells, mm. um, I had the chance to uh, see her speak and meet her in person over Art Basel and Zurich Art Day. Mm -hmm. Her story, her openness, her mm -hmm. ability to translate that into really qualitative material. I think that takes a particular courage, but equally a particular innate and worked on talent, a forged talent, if you mm. will. In terms of contemporary artists, I'll give a huge shout out to someone who I wish um, could have minted on the blockchain. He sadly passed away a few weeks ago, but Erwin Olaf, who I represented through Hamilton's gallery for some time, 
great uh, artist from Holland, basically a national hero. And I think if he had had his health, he would have very much loved the Tezos community. And I would have absolutely loved to bring him on board. So he's number mm. two. And he did inspire me then. And he does inspire me now. So for anyone who hasn't seen his work, Erwin Olaf, O-L-A-F. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last one is going to be, I'm going to give a huge shout out to uh, to Annika Meyer, actually. Mm. I think Annika, I first met her when I was green. I must have frustrated her so much, how much I did not know about Web3 and how I didn't mm. know about how to sell things and how to make great blockchain projects. But she has, without us being in daily contact or weekly contact, has always been there to really make things excellent. Mm-hmm. And for anyone out there who hasn't already seen what she's done, yeah, just wanted to give a big shout out to her as a curator as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I also had the chance to meet her and she will be in the podcast. I think it's in two episodes. She's in the in the schedule. I'm very, very happy to talk to her and learn, learn from her on all the things she has done because it's impressive what she's doing with expanded art. It's also yes. quite interesting. Actually, I wanted to mention, as you said, like when you buy something online, you expect to get an email or you expect to get some sort of confirmation. And I recently got a piece in Expanded Art and they had that, the card checkout and you you get an email and, hey, claim your NFT, here's your yeah. receipt. And it's interesting. I think it's more user-friendly for, yeah, it, probably better from a, for adoption. Even if it's all going in the blockchain, it's... People are used to that. So I think that made uh, a lot of sense. It creates a level of reassurance, but certainly she has an eye. That's for sure. Mm, yeah. so if I'm thinking about it from blockchain artist, wish could have been blockchain artist and curator, then those are my top three. Awesome. That's amazing. Valerie, thanks again for your time, sharing your insights. And hopefully we see you again here in the podcast in the future. I'd absolutely love it. I'm, yeah, we'll set a date for a year from now. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care.